there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Calling all cars. Calling all cars. There's been a shooting at the grocery store in Skidmore. One victim in critical condition? Suspect believed to be fleeing the area. Oh, Jesus. You don't think that's... All units, be on the lookout for a green Chevy pickup. Yep. That's Ken. He finally did it. Approach with extreme caution. Suspect is believed to be armed and dangerous. (sighs) Here we go. On July 8th, 1980... The one-sided feud between Ken McElroy and an elderly grocer, Ernest Bo Bowencamp, finally reached its boiling point. What started as a dispute over a piece of candy escalated to a shooting. While that might seem extreme to the people of Skidmore, Missouri, it was not unexpected. Not from Ken McElroy. McElroy had spent the better part of his 46 years bullying the residents of the small 430-person town. He stole hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of livestock and flaunted his earnings right in their faces. He raped and abused girls as young as 12 years old, then got away with it by threatening and manipulating them into recanting their stories. And when he finally went to trial the first time he shot someone, he hired a high-priced lawyer and intimidated witnesses until the case against him fell apart and the jury acquitted him. The motivation behind McElroy's hostility was his ego. Because he grew up very poor, he refused to let anyone look down on him as an adult. If Ken decided that someone had disrespected him or his family, they became an immediate target of his rage. And after more than 20 criminal indictments without a single conviction, that rage had become completely unchecked. So when he heard that someone accused his daughter of trying to steal candy from the local grocery store, Ken's pride wouldn't allow him to just let that go. But as the saying goes, pride comes before a fall. And it couldn't be more true in this case, because the shooting of Bo Bowenkamp set into motion a series of events in the town of Skidmore. Events that culminated one year later in Ken McElroy getting shot in the head in the middle of town in the middle of the day in a crowd of 60 people. But no one was ever charged with his murder because nobody in the entire town of Skidmore saw the shooters. At least that's their story, and they've stuck to it for over 30 years. The 
This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on Ken McElroy. If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you would leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. On July 8, 1980, the night of the shooting, while Ken McElroy was attempting to make his escape across the highways and back roads of northwestern Missouri, the people of Skidmore had their attention focused on the victim of his attack. Bo Bowenkamp was lying on the floor of his grocery store, neck torn open by buckshot in a pool of his own blood. Keep pressure on it. You're doing fine, Bo. There's an ambulance on the way. Bo? Bo? Keep her back. She doesn't want to see this. Lois, why don't you come with me? That's my husband lying there. Like heck, I'm not going to be at his side. All right, all right. Let her through. Bo, don't you leave me now. Hello. 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 That's right, Bo. Lois, your, your Lois is here. No. That's not what he's saying. McCloy. McCloy. McElroy. McElroy. By the time the paramedics had arrived, more than 30 people had gathered in the street. Everyone knew what had happened, and everyone knew who did it. The ambulance took Bo to the emergency room where the doctor assessed his condition. There were four wounds in Bo's neck, believed to be the entry and exit points of two shotgun pellets that had just missed his jugular vein and carotid artery by less than half an inch. The doctor was able to clean the wound and stabilize Bo in the intensive care unit. It was there that Sheriff Danny Estes and three other lawmen visited him. Even in critical condition, Bo was able to give his statement of what happened, a statement from which he never wavered. Ken McElroy shot him with a double-barreled shotgun. For over two months, McElroy had harassed the Bowen camps, stalking them, threatening them, firing shotguns outside their home. All the while, the other residents of Skidmore did nothing to help them. Bo's daughter Cheryl hoped that the shooting would be the wake-up call that the community needed. Unfortunately, it was going to take more than that before they'd finally stand up to Ken McElroy. But as much as it may have been the town's moral duty to protect their own from Ken's bullying, it wasn't their job. And the people whose job it actually was had been just as impotent. From the sheriff who rarely followed up on the threats Ken made, to the town marshal who resigned rather than stand up to him, to the local circuit judge who recused himself from all cases against McElroy for fear of retaliation, the systems of law and order that were supposed to protect people like Bo had failed to do so. In the whole region, there was really only one lawman who wasn't afraid of Ken McElroy, and that was Corporal Richard Dean Stratton of the Missouri Highway Patrol. Stratton's first run-in with McElroy was years before the shooting of Bo Bowencamp. Stratton was on patrol early one morning and spotted a pickup truck full of hogs driving through Skidmore. When he pulled the vehicle over to question the driver about the livestock, Stratton ended up on the wrong side of Ken McElroy's shotgun. 
He was caught completely off guard and knew that any move toward his own weapon might be his last. So Stratton let Ken off with a warning, but from that day on, he resolved to learn everything he could about the notorious bully. So when the call came over his radio on July 8, 1980, that a grocer had been shot in Skidmore and the suspect was on the run, Stratton knew the investigation would lead him to Ken McElroy. From what he had learned about Ken over the years, Stratton assumed he'd be trying to leave the jurisdiction, so he set out in his patrol car to cut him off before he crossed the Missouri River into Kansas. Stratton also knew that McElroy had a police radio scanner that he was no doubt listening in on, so he kept his plan off the airwaves until his maneuvering paid off. Sure enough, he spotted the green pickup with Ken behind the wheel and his wife Trina riding in the passenger seat. Stratton had learned his lesson about approaching McElroy, so from the moment he pulled them over until backup arrived, he kept his gun aimed at Ken and his trigger finger ready to pull if he did anything out of line. Although Ken played dumb about the shooting and Trina conveniently provided the alibi that he'd been home all night, nobody was buying it. McElroy was arrested and charged with felony assault in the first degree. I heard the old man's gonna pull through. Thank God. If any goods that come from this, at least Ken's finally behind bars. Evening, folks. Anybody know what all that commotion was about last night? Ken, what are you doing here? Getting a drink, what else? So, was there a burglary at the grocery store or something? Damn. I stay home one night and I miss all the action. <laughs> well, if no one's talking, I might as well be drinking. Pour me some of that Jack, would you, Del? The bail had been set for $30,000, but under Missouri law, that didn't actually require any money up front. So with nothing more than a promise by Ken's mother and younger brother to pay the amount if Ken didn't show up for trial, McElroy was back on the streets. The only bond provisions of his tentative freedom were that he would, quote, keep the peace and be of good behavior. Two things Ken McElroy had never been good at. With the help of his lawyer, Richard Jean McFadden, McElroy had been acquitted of shooting a man once before. Ken probably thought, he could do it again. And just like the previous time, McFadden did everything he could to delay the trial while Ken used that additional time to concoct an alibi and intimidate the prosecution's witnesses. The biggest witness this time was the victim himself. Without Bo's testimony, it would be nearly impossible to convict McElroy, and Ken knew it. McElroy spent two months tormenting the Camp family before the shooting. So he just picked up where he left off, following them in his truck with a gun in his lap and making threatening phone calls at all hours of the day and night. Bo and his wife Lois spent the next 12 months living in constant fear. They slept in shifts so that someone was always awake, and they established a system of checking in with people before they left the house and after they had safely arrived at their destination. But despite their many complaints to law enforcement, nothing was done to help them. As the law saw it, they hadn't caught McElroy doing anything illegal that they could arrest him for. 
To make matters worse, the Bowen camps were totally abandoned by the community. Anybody who was perceived to be helping them out immediately became a target of McElroy's intimidation. Even the town minister wasn't immune. After arriving home from a visit to Comfort Lois, he received a phone call. Mind your own damn business, or I'm going to kill your little boy and scatter his pieces all over your front yard. But the Bowen camps held strong, and through all the pretrial motions, no matter how hard Ken's lawyer McFadden went at him in cross-examination, Bo stuck by his testimony that Ken McElroy had fired a shotgun at him, unprovoked, from about four feet away. But with a short fuse already, the added stress of his approaching trial made Ken even more sensitive to the smallest provocations. On September 13, 1980, Ken's wife Trina was backing their truck out of a parking lot when a car carrying a family with an infant and a toddler inside had to swerve to avoid hitting them. The driver shouted at Trina and gave her the middle finger as she drove away. Maybe it was the weight of the world coming down on Ken. Maybe it was just how he had always been wired. But he and Trina chased the family down. This was more than your typical case of road rage. Ken and Trina caught up with a smaller car, pulled up next to it at full speed, and swerved into the fender. What'd you call my wife back there? What'd you call my wife? Get the hell out of the car and I'll whip your ass right now. I ought to blow your goddamn head off. The police arrived before anyone got seriously hurt, and McElroy was arrested and charged with yet another felony. But by the time that case went to trial on December 12, 1980, Ken had scared the victims into completely changing their story. Contrary to their earlier statements to the police, at trial they claimed McElroy never aimed the gun at them and that they never felt threatened. McElroy was acquitted yet again, but at least something amounted from the incident. The fact that he was even charged with a felony was a violation of his bond and grounds for the court to reconsider his freedom. The people of Skidmore hoped the bond would be revoked and McElroy would remain in custody until the trial, but such was not the case. Instead, the bail amount was raised by $10,000, and McElroy was prohibited from leaving the adjacent counties. That last part turned out to be bad news for everyone, except Ken McElroy. The travel restrictions actually kept Ken in Skidmore and helped his lawyer delay the trial even longer because McFadden's office was located outside of the boundaries. But there was one more condition the judge had put on the new bond that actually had consequence. McElroy was forbidden from carrying firearms on his person or his vehicle. If getting charged with the attack on Bo Bowencamp was the first small step in Ken McElroy's undoing, this firearms provision was the second. But this was October 1980, and that provision wouldn't come back to bite him until the following summer. In the meantime, Ken McElroy still faced his day in court. Even though Bo was the only witness to the shooting, enough people had seen Ken and his truck outside the B&B grocery that evening that Ken couldn't deny being at the scene this time. Instead, McElroy went with self-defense. 
He claimed that Bo came after him with a butcher knife, and he had no choice but to fire his shotgun to keep from being stabbed. Bo had been cutting down cardboard boxes at the grocery that night, so it was true that Bo had a butcher knife, a detail Gene McFadden made a meal of at trial. But the crime scene told a different story. From the angle of the shotgun blast to the location where Bo's body fell inside the store, the facts showed that the two men were standing too far away from each other for McElroy's version to be true. Then, on May 8, 1981, a woman named Selena O'Connor came forward as an eyewitness for the defense. In a statement she signed in McFadden's office, she claimed that she saw the confrontation between Ken and Bo that night and that Bo was indeed threatening Ken with the butcher knife. Never mind that it apparently took her 10 months to come forward with this information or that she inexplicably drove an hour away from her home just to witness this attack and drive back without talking to anyone, or that she happened to be married to the son of Maurice O'Connor, an alibi witness from Ken's previous trial. If the prosecution had their witnesses, McElroy would have his. David Baird, the prosecuting attorney in the trial, had educated himself on McElroy's previous acquittals and McFadden's courtroom tactics. Knowing the sort of slippery character that he was dealing with, Baird played it safe at trial. The last thing he wanted was for McElroy to walk free on a technicality. The first thing he did was change the language of the charge against McElroy so that it no longer said he attempted to kill Bo. He'd still be charged with first-degree assault, carrying the same potential punishment, but the new wording gave the jury a little more leeway to convict. Second... Baird decided not to bring up the candy incident that started the whole thing, or any of McElroy's harassment of the Bowen camps afterward. Since McElroy was claiming self-defense, Baird didn't want to give the jury any reason to think that Bo might have wanted to attack him. The case against McElroy was strong, and he knew it. He managed to get his hands on the names of the jurors and started asking around if anyone knew them. Through a mutual friend, Ken offered one juror $1,000 in exchange for a hung jury. This was the closest to jail time McElroy had ever come, and he was scared. When it came to jury tampering, bribery wasn't even the most desperate thing he attempted. Hey there. How'd you boys like to earn a few bucks? Sure. You need your lawnmower or something? Or something. Say, you aren't a couple chickens, are you? Hell no. I ain't afraid of nothing. Yeah? How about rattlesnakes? I've been killing rattlesnakes since I was five. I don't need you to kill them. I want you to catch them. Give you ten bucks a piece. Hell yeah, I'll do it. Good, good. Then once you got them, I just need you to put them in the mailbox at these addresses. Oh, uh, I don't know about that. Oh, you don't know about that. I thought you weren't afraid of nothing. Yeah, but... Yeah, but what? Come on, let's get out of here. Nearly a year after the shooting, McElroy's case finally went to trial on June 25, 1981. Bo stuck to his story. The defense's so-called eyewitness was easily discredited. Corporal Stratton was unflinching in his testimony of Ken's arrest, and McElroy's version of events held up badly to Baird's cross-examination. As both sides rested their case, things didn't look good for McElroy. But Ken had gotten out of equally dire situations before, 
and there was still that juror that he'd promised $1,000. Has the jury reached a verdict? We have, Your Honor. What say you? We find the defendant, Ken McElroy, guilty. It was a victory for the people of Skidmore. The man who terrorized them for decades had finally been convicted. But the victory was short-lived. Because Ken McElroy would never serve a day of his sentence. Your Honor, the defense would like to enter a motion for a new trial. Very well. Mr. McElroy, you will remain under the conditions of your bond while the court considers your motion. Until then, you are free to go. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue the story. Almost a year after his unprovoked attack on Bo Bowen camp, Ken McElroy had finally been found guilty of the crime. The maximum allowable sentence for second-degree assault was five years in prison. But the jury in Ken's trial opted for only two years, a sentence his lawyer thought he wouldn't even serve a full year of. Missouri law required the jury to consider a punishment strictly for the crime which the defendant had been convicted. They were not given any additional information about the character of the defendant or his past behavior. That means they didn't hear about Ken's months-long harassment of the Bowen camps, his previous rape and assault charges, or that just about everybody in Skidmore lived in fear of him. As far as the jury knew, McElroy had a one-time dispute with Bo that escalated to the non-lethal firing of a weapon. After the trial, when the jurors learned more about Ken McElroy, Many of them felt duped, and they regretted giving him a lighter sentence. But whether they sentenced McElroy to two years or 20 years, it didn't matter in the end. Because another aspect of Missouri criminal law that benefited McElroy was that even after a defendant was found guilty, he or she could remain free during the appeals process. So even after his conviction, Ken was allowed to return home until his motion for a new trial was either denied or his new trial began. Which meant that back in Skidmore, it seemed like nothing had changed. My crops got a whole two inches of rain last night. Wow, that's amazing. I know, right? Gonna be a bumper season for me. No, it's amazing your side of town only got two inches. My meter was reading nearly three. <laughs> you two are so blind drunk last night, you're lucky if you could see the sun coming up, much less read a rain meter. <laughs> what are we all laughing about, boys? You know, I gotta go repair that combine before this afternoon. Yeah, I, I forgot. The wife wanted me to pick up some orange juice for the kids. Uh, I'll see you later, Dell. Slow morning, Dell. Ken, could you stop coming by? You're driving business away. Suppose you'd be happy if I was rotting away in a prison cell. If you ever get what's coming to you, I wouldn't complain. Well, that's too goddamn bad, because I'm not going to jail. I'm not going anywhere. In public, he seemed like the same old Ken McElroy, angry and unflinching. But in private, that guilty conviction had changed him. It proved that he wasn't actually as invincible as he thought. And despite the tough guy persona he'd spent a lifetime cultivating, McElroy wasn't prepared to do hard time. Although he regularly beat up defenseless young girls, 
Ken was never known to pick a fight with someone his own size. Without a gun in his hands, McElroy was all bark and no bite, and the people of Skidmore finally started to realize it. The world began closing in on McElroy. His wife Trina was scared each time he went into town alone. One time a man came by their house and told them that someone had offered him money to shoot Ken. Ken and Trina even drew up legal documents so that Ken's old girlfriend Alice Wood could become the legal guardian of their children if both Ken and Trina died. The man who had spent a lifetime bringing fear and terror upon the town of Skidmore was finally getting some fear and terror of his own. Because of the road rage incident, Ken's bond no longer allowed him to carry firearms, so he'd have Trina carry a gun whenever they went anywhere together. On June 30th, 1981, just four days after his conviction, Trina followed Ken into the D&G Tavern, carrying an M1 rifle and bayonet. Inside, McElroy loaded the weapon and started waving it around to show people just what he intended to do to Bo Bowencamp the next time he got him alone. What do you think? It's not too late to give old Bo a pop in the head. Then I'll carve him up from ass to neck like a turkey with a bayonet. You don't think I'll do it? I could shoot him right between the eyes and be back here drinking at the D&G Tavern the very next day. And there's nothing you, the law, or anyone else can do about it. <laughs> Haven't you learned? I'm untouchable. While Ken's behavior was frightening, it wasn't out of the ordinary. Most days, people would ignore him and avoid his gaze. Most days, they'd find an excuse to walk away. Most days, Ken's threats would go completely unchecked. But June 30th, 1981, was not most days. Like hell you are, Ken! Pete Ward was a World War II Army veteran and a respected farmer, and he had had enough of Ken McElroy. He marched out of the tavern that day, up the hill to his home, took out his rifle, and aimed it back down the street. If Ken McElroy decided to come after him, he was prepared to blow him away. But McElroy didn't follow Pete. He got into his truck and drove the opposite direction out of town. It was something of a watershed moment for the town of Skidmore. Someone had publicly stood up to Ken McElroy and gotten away with it. Pete's next move was to try and get McElroy's bond revoked. He had been in possession of a firearm after all. The prosecutor, David Baird, asked Pete to collect signed affidavits from witnesses of the incident. Although Baird wanted as much as anyone to see McElroy behind bars, he warned Pete that the affidavits would not guarantee that McElroy would be jailed. And that meant that anyone who signed them was putting their name out there for McElroy to see. But Pete was fearless. He got his two sons and a local farmer named Gary Dowling to sign the affidavit along with him. And two days later, Baird filed the motion to revoke McElroy's bond. But as expected, McElroy began to intimidate Pete Ward and anyone else who he believed had signed that affidavit against him. He made open threats and stalked people in his truck, parking outside their farms and homes with a high-powered rifle in his lap. But unlike with the Bowen camps, the residents of Skidmore were no longer willing to turn a blind eye to Ken's harassment of one of their own. David Baer knew it was only a matter of time before something went wrong in Skidmore. 
so he requested that the bond hearing happen quickly. The hearing was scheduled for five days later on July 10, 1981. That morning of July 10th, dozens of trucks flooded into the main street of Skidmore as farmers from all over the region met up at the cafe. They were there to escort Pete Ward and the other men who signed the affidavit to the courthouse as a show of solidarity. There was only one problem. Hello? Ken, it's Gene. I've got some news. What's that? The judge granted our request to postpone the hearing. Good. How long? Another ten days. <laughs> I can't wait to see the look on Pete Ward's face. I suggest you stay out of Skidmore. There's a lot of people who aren't going to be happy about this. Gene, I thought you knew me by now. I'll go where I want, when I want. Ken, use your head and just stay the heck out of... When word of the postponed hearing reached the men at the cafe in Skidmore, it was not welcome news. Ten more days? What the hell are we supposed to do till then? Pete and these boys got a target on their back. Who knows what Ken will try this time? Well, maybe one of us finds Ken alone some night and... No. No violence. We're this close to getting him locked up. Let's not do anything stupid. Pete's right. We've just got to make a plan to keep these guys safe until July 20th. We're all here. I'm sure that a lot of us can come up with something. The gathering moved down the street to the Legion Hall, where many different ideas were discussed. Let's pass an ordinance to ban Ken from the town. Call David Baird. See what he thinks. We can hire our own lawyer. I got 50 bucks. Who else is in? What about bringing the rural posse back? You know, like when we took turns patrolling the roads for cattle thieves? Sure, we could take turns following McElroy. Keep our eyes on him at all times. I got a couple radios we could use to keep in contact. That's great and all. But the rural posse was run legally, with the blessing of law enforcement. Well, let's call the sheriff down here and get ourselves deputized. They called Sheriff Estes, who drove in to meet with the men. More than anything, he seemed concerned for their safety, that sneaking around and following McElroy might get one of them killed. But when the idea of legally deputizing a posse came up, Estes promised he'd seek approval from the county commissioners that afternoon. When the sheriff drove away from the Legion Hall that morning, it seemed like a plan was in motion that would safely get the town of Skidmore through until the bond hearing. But just a few minutes later, that plan was about to be tested. He's here. He just parked in front of the D&G. Who? We all know who. Well, we said we were going to keep an eye on him. No time like the present. The 60 men made their way down the street towards the D&G Tavern, where Ken McElroy's Silverado pickup truck was parked right out front. You know what all those trucks are doing in town today? I wouldn't dare to presume. A lot of cars, but not a lot of folks in here. Ken, are you going to buy something? Beer, camels, and a pack of Rolades. Trina, honey, you want anything? I want to go home. Nothing for the lady. Ken, why is no one talking? This place is sure filling up. If it wasn't Friday, I'd think church just let out. Come on up to the bar, boys. Make yourselves at home. I don't like this, Ken. Let's just go. Hmm. Well, 
As much as I enjoy this titillating conversation, I can't waste the whole day getting drunk with y'all. Some of us got real work to do. Come on, Trina. Out on the street, it seemed like half the town was watching as McElroy walked toward his car. Several of the men from the Legion Hall had remained outside the tavern, and those who were inside followed him out. Bo and Lois Bowenkamp's daughter watched from the windows of the B&B grocery, and just about every other building with a window facing the street was filled with spectators. Ken and Trina loaded into the Silverado, and he started the engine. Why are they all staring at us? I don't know. Ken put a cigarette into his mouth, but before he had a chance to light it... They've got guns! Oh, God! Oh, God! (laughs) Bullets ripped through the rear window of the Silverado and struck Ken in the head. Someone pulled Trina from the truck and out of the line of fire. When the shooting stopped, the people on the street who had ducked for cover finally looked up at the scene. McElroy's body slumped back in the seat, his foot pressed against the gas pedal. Blood sprayed from a hole in his jaw. Nobody dared approach the truck as black smoke spewed from the overworked engine. Until, finally. It was over. Ken McElroy was dead. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Nottaway County Sheriff's Office. This is Richard McFadden. My client's wife called and said he'd been shot. What's the name of your client? Uh, Ken McElroy. Hmm. We haven't heard of that yet. You're kidding me. No one's called to report a shooting in Skidmore? We'll look into it and get back to you. In a sign of things to come, Ken McElroy's body lay dead in his Silverado in the middle of town for 45 minutes before the authorities even learned about the shooting. When Sheriff Estes eventually arrived, he was furious. Many of the people who were standing there staring at the bullet-riddled Silverado were the same men he had just met with a couple of hours earlier. Some passers-by got a momentary fright when the paramedics hooked McElroy up to a heart monitor and it looked like they were trying to revive him. In reality, it was just a matter of protocol to confirm his death, and Ken McElroy was most certainly dead. Of the eight to ten shots fired in his direction, only two bullets hit McElroy's body. The first bullet was a 30-30 slug fired from behind that shot through McElroy's neck, continuing through his mouth and out of his cheek, spraying the dashboard with blood, teeth, and his unlit cigarette. Trina was still sitting in the passenger seat right next to Ken when that bullet ripped through her husband. Although McElroy likely would have bled to death from the first wound, a second bullet, fired from a different gun, did him in first. That shot was a 22 caliber bullet that came from a different angle behind Ken. It hit him in the back of the skull and tore into his brain. There was also a third shooter who aimed a shotgun at Ken that day but no one has been able to confirm whether he fired the weapon or not. Regardless, Ken McElroy was not killed by a shotgun. Because of how close Sheriff Estes and Prosecutor David Baird were to the situation with Skidmore and McElroy, they turned the investigation into the murder over to the Northwest Missouri Investigative Squad, or NOMIS, to avoid any conflicts. 
Nomis began their investigation that day with over 20 officers, confident that they would be able to find someone who saw the killer shoot a man in broad daylight. But almost every witness they spoke to had the same story. I hit the ground as soon as the bullets started flying. We turned away from the window for our own safety. It was chaos. I couldn't make out a thing. I shut my eyes and waited till it was over. Didn't see anyone. Couldn't tell you who the shooter was. Never saw him. And if I had, I wouldn't tell you. But there was one person that day who was willing to talk about what she saw. I was sitting right next to Ken when I looked out the back window and I saw Del Clement lift up his rifle. Next thing I know, blood spraying out of Ken's neck. Someone pulled me out of the truck and I didn't look back. Del Clement was what the D stood for in the D&G Tavern. After the incident, Del had driven to a small town in Iowa to play in the Clement Brothers Band when the Nomis investigators caught up with him. When questioned about the shooting, Del was quick to say that Ken had it coming, but ultimately Del had nothing to do with it. At the time of Ken's shooting, Trina McElroy was far from a perfect witness. Remember, when Trina was only 12 years old, McElroy had raped her, beaten her, and made her watch as he burned her parents' house down before forcing her to marry him. Although there's no doubt that Trina would have been much better off if something had been done about Ken McElroy years ago, the fact is, by 1981, she had spent the better part of a decade being an active and willing participant in her husband's treachery. On top of her bad reputation, Trina was on record perjuring herself in the past when she reported McElroy's abuse and then later recanted it. Even after Ken's death, with the help of his old lawyer, Gene McFadden, Trina came off as an opportunist, looking for ways to cash in on her husband's murder. She was interested in selling the movie rights to her life story, and each time she spoke to the press, her version of the events were slightly different. In the end, Nomis completed their investigation without any arrests. So the decision of who to charge with the murder of Ken McElroy fell on prosecutor David Baird. In Nottoway County, a coroner's jury is assigned in order to determine whether a death occurred in an unlawful manner and to identify whoever might be responsible for the death. Baird was so certain that the coroner's jury would name Del Clement based on Trina's testimony that he had a warrant already prepared in his name. The hearing was held on July 21, 1981, 11 days after the murder, and lasted less than an hour. Apart from Trina, three other Skidmore residents testified that they had been there that day, but they all claimed they never saw any shooter or any gun. The coroner's jury returned with a verdict that Ken McElroy had been killed by a person or persons unknown. The warrant for Del Clement's arrest was torn up. Still without enough evidence for an indictment, Baird impaled a state grand jury. He set up a post office box to allow anyone to come forward with information about the killing. All he seemed to need was one more person who could corroborate Trina's version of events and he could make the arrest. But that corroboration never came. The people of Skidmore were sticking together but things weren't getting any easier for them. The killing had turned their town into something of a media circus. Newspapers across the country wanted to tell the sensational story of the bully who was murdered in front of the whole town. The reporting was often inaccurate and tried to sensationalize the event. 
The residents of Skidmore were painted as vigilantes, stepping in as judge, jury, and executioner when the law had failed to protect them. Skidmore was finally rid of one tormentor, but it had drawn an entirely new sort of unwanted attention to itself. By March 1982, when the state grand jury hadn't made any progress, the FBI stepped in to investigate. They interviewed over 100 witnesses and issued over 60 subpoenas to the people of Skidmore. Out of all of those interviews, the FBI came up with only three additional witnesses, but they believed it was enough evidence to charge someone with McElroy's murder. Rather than bring the charges in federal court, they handed their materials over to David Baird for the state to drop an indictment. But Baird saw the evidence differently than the FBI had. Even before the materials had been turned over, one of the FBI's witnesses recanted. Another of the witnesses had already gone on the record with three different accounts of what he saw or didn't see that day. When Baird interviewed him again, he gave yet a fourth version that he saw nothing that morning. A statement from the final witness gave a vague description of the shooter. But when Baird re-interviewed the witness for clarification, she backed off from her story completely and accused the FBI of stretching her words. On November 11, 1982, Baird announced that the state still had insufficient evidence to charge anyone in McElroy's murder. And although the murder case remains open, that marked the last significant progress by law enforcement to solve it. Trina McElroy did sue in civil court for wrongful death of her husband. From both her federal and state lawsuits, she sought $9 million in damages. Trina ended up settling out of court with Nottoway County, the town of Skidmore, and Del Clement for a combined total of $17,500. So who actually pulled the trigger on the guns that killed Ken McElroy on July 10th, 1981? As we mentioned, dozens of news outlets descended on Skidmore, Missouri in the months that followed most of the journalists looking to quickly capitalize on the shocking unsolved murder. But Harry McLean, a lawyer and author from Denver, Colorado, spent three years researching the story and turned it into a best-selling true crime book, In Broad Daylight. In 1991, his book was even turned into a TV movie by the same name, although the characters' names were changed. The Ken McElroy role was played by Brian Dennehy. In the three and a half decades since first publishing his book, McLean had continued to visit the town of Skidmore and follow the story of McElroy's murder. Over the years, McLean developed a fondness for the town and remained friends with many of its residents. A good deal of the information in his book came from drinking with locals late into the night when alcohol made everyone a little more loose-lipped. You know, you can't well prove a murder without a murder weapon. Hey, hey, hey. We don't talk about that. This is all theoretical, you know? Like, if someone asked me how to get rid of a gun, I might tell them to smash it up with a sledgehammer. Throw it into a fire. Yeah, in the theoretical. But then you gotta chop them up into little pieces, scatter them where they can't be found. Bottom of a few wells might work for that, don't you think? Say... Nobody'd ever find him there. Now, I ain't saying anything like that ever happened. But if it did happen, it happened that way. But despite how close Harry McLean has become with the people of Skidmore, no one has ever told him who shot Ken McElroy.
However, through his research, he eventually got his hands on information that was never made publicly available before. When visiting Skidmore in December 2005, David Baird granted McLean access to the original Nomus investigation files containing a police statement taken from an eyewitness the day after the shooting. Frankie Aldridge, who was working at the town's gas station, claimed to see Del Clement and Gary Dowling aiming rifles at McElroy's truck and then driving away in a hurry. Gary Dowling was one of the men who signed the affidavit, along with Pete Ward, to get McElroy's bond revoked. He'd been present for all of the events that morning of July 10th, from the cafe to the Legion Hall to the confrontation outside the DNG. But Aldridge later recanted that statement. In fact, he's the same witness that Baird deemed unreliable, on account of him changing his story four times over the course of the investigation. So who actually killed Ken McElroy? Given a lack of other suspects, I believe that Del Clement was one of the shooters that day. Trina, for all her other flaws, never wavered from her certainty that it was Del that she saw with the rifle. And because the statement from Frankie Aldridge corroborates Trina's account of one shooter, I believe he was telling the truth about Gary Dowling being the second shooter as well. The statement in which Aldridge named Dell and Gary was taken within 24 hours of the shooting. At that point, he probably assumed that others would also identify Dell and Gary to the investigators. There were enough men standing closer to the action than he was. But as days passed and nobody else in the town of Skidmore named a suspect, the peer pressure might have been enough to make Aldridge change his statement and deny having seen anyone with a gun. If Del Clement and Gary Dowling were the killers, they took that secret to the grave. Both men have since passed away without any sort of deathbed confession. So even though we have our theories, we may never know for certain who was behind the murder of Ken McElroy. Since 1981, Skidmore has fallen on tough times. The population dropped below 300 in recent years, and many of the places that Ken McElroy used to haunt, like the D&G Tavern, B&B Grocery, and the Legion Hall, have long since closed down. And much to the chagrin of anyone who grew up with a fondness for the town, its reputation will always be marred by the unsolved murder of Ken McElroy. The law failed to protect the people of Skidmore, so it's easy to say that they became lawless vigilantes themselves. And if Ken McElroy had been found shot dead on some back road in the middle of the night, one could make the case that his killers had escaped justice. But Ken McElroy was shot dead in front of 60 people who kept their mouths shut for over 30 years and counting. In a situation like that, one could actually make the case that his killers were judged and that they were found not guilty by a jury of their peers. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. If we live till next time.
Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Jeremy Svensson and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masu, Steve Pinto, and Greg Polson. Hey.